Welcome to Jack Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Today, we're celebrating Women's History Month by having a panel of women researchers who have and continue to make impactful contributions to the field of anterior cruciate ligament injury research. I'm joined today by Dr. Sandy Schultz, who is an NATA fellow, an NATA Hall of Fame member, and a professor at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. We also have Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor at Michigan State University, whose work has been funded by the NATA Foundation. And finally, we've got Dr. Lindsay Lepley, an NIH-funded researcher at the University of Michigan. Sandy, Lindsay, and Shelby, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the first thing that I want to get into is what led you to pursue a career in research and particularly what was your sparked your interest in ACL injury research? Sandy, we'll go ahead and get started with you. Yeah, um, I worked as a clinician for 13 years. And when I was at UCLA, I think we had eight ACL injuries, female ACL injuries in one year. And so when I went back to school to get my doctoral degree, fully expecting to then go back into athletic training or to, you know, being a clinical athletic trainer, I really just wanted to focus on how to prevent the injuries instead of treat them. But then I fell in love with research. So, As we all probably could commiserate with, right? Lindsay, how about you? I sort of got bit by the rehab bug as well. Um, I was, uh, I worked clinically um, and that was the part of uh, practicing, uh, practicing as an AT that I enjoyed the most, um, but had a lot of questions about like, you know, why do we only do this for this certain amount of time? And like, why is this prescribed here and not there? And so, you know, that sort of drove me to go back um, to, to get a, a research related degree and it's, and it just, it's worked out. Thank you. Shelby. Very similar to what's already been said. Uh, when I was working clinically, I specifically had a lot of patients who had history of ACL reconstruction or we did rehab after ACLR um, and realized the psychological side of things was an important piece, but didn't really know what to do on to how to treat it, to address it. Um, so that led me to pursue further education. And then I got also bit by the rehab uh, bug and the research bug and uh, led me here. Thank you guys. So all very similar origin stories that kind of led to different diverse areas. And Sandy, how has your research agenda changed and evolved over the years? Yeah, um, when I started out, the literature was really just beginning to report the difference in ACL injury rate between men and women. In fact, if you did a lit search, there was like a total of 22 articles in PubMed. So um, early on, I focused on neuromuscular differences, you know, trying to understand. And, and, and that led to, okay, we see these differences. What causes these neuromuscular differences? And that's what led me to study hormones and knee joint laxity. And finding that knee joint laxity was a primary risk factor for injury. Um, you know, now I began to look at, okay, what causes that increase in laxity? What does that laxity mean? Um, if we measure laxity, what does that tell us about the structural integrity of the ligament? And now after really about 20, 25 years, um, I'm now finally beginning to get to the point that we understand it well enough that, you know, hey, how can we 
develop some injury prevention strategies um, to to address that. And so it's an area that hasn't, it's an anatomical risk factor a lot of time has been ignored, but you know, we have to find a way, even if we can't correct it, to shore it up. But it's taking that long to get to the point where we can really think about prevention. So that's, I guess, how I would describe it as evolving over time. So what do you guys all kind of feel like in the last five years, what have been the real advances in your respective areas of ACL injury research? So we kind of heard a little bit about how Sandy's has evolved. I, I, I can jump in here. I think over the past five years, I think we're starting at my area of research is really on the psychological side. So psychological intervention and psychological assessment after ACL reconstruction. And I think over the past five years, we're starting to appreciate um, the impact that these psychological and social factors are having on the rehabilitation process and rehabilitation outcomes. And I think we're, we're starting to examine these patients from this holistic biopsychosocial perspective a bit more. Um, so from my end, I think we have this a good appreciation and a greater appreciation for how the mind may be also influencing some of these uh, physical um, functional outcomes after ACLR. Yeah. Lindsay? I was just going to add, uh, you know, I think people like things don't happen in a silo and there's a lot of crosstalk between systems. And so I think a lot of what's happened is like multidisciplinary teams are starting to come together to like meld, you know, Hey, I have this unique observation, you know, does that, does that mean something to you? You know, people are talking a little bit more and thinking about things more comprehensively um, as, as Shelby just pointed out. So I think it's kind of an exciting time um, because I think for a long time, you know, like neural was like highly investigated, but muscle wasn't considered psychological factors certainly weren't considered um, modifiable risk factors, you know, um, weren't necessarily considered. So I think it's a kind of an exciting time to be in this area of research. And Lindsay, I want to stick with you for a second because your lab group was actually featured in this March issue in the Journal of Athletic Training highlighting women researchers. Tell us about um, the project that was performed and how kind of this fits into your current research agenda. Yeah, sure. Um, our lab feels that there's like a lot of data that gets left behind. Um, you know, uh, data can be hard to collect, but then it's like, you know, someone just plucks a, a single number out like a peak. And that's what ends up getting compared between groups. And we think data is much more rich and informative than that. And we're, what we're trying to do is infuse analyses that like let the data come forward. So we have a more comprehensive story um, to, to provide to both the patient as well as the clinician. So um, this particular work looked at like the utility of what's called a functional data analysis. Um, so it's a type of um, analysis um, that can be applied to things like biomechanical data that doesn't just look at like a peak um, angle of something, but can look at like the entire trajectory of like the magnitude and the timing and compare that between groups. And what we saw was, is that, you know, those types of measures can be more informative about like what's not only happening at the knee, but like at the hip and ankle and people that perceivably pass clinical thresholds. Um, you know, there's other places in the lower extremity that are suffering and different types of analyses can kind of bring that forward. So staying on this topic of biomechanics, a lot of the ACL research has been really biomechanics heavy. How do you guys see the, the different evaluations from a biomechanical standpoint evolving and continuing to evolve? 
if I can jump in, I, I think we're past just trying to describe differences. You know, um, that's what the research really predominated for years is just males and females are different. Well, I don't even know that we knew, we just assumed because females move differently that that was bad for a female, but our anatomy's different, our, I mean, there's many things that are different. And so I think, I think we're using biomechanics as more of an outcome tool instead of the kind of diagnostic tool is not probably a good word, but to understand risk in that it's one way that we can understand how all these factors that were mentioned before, the brain, psychosocial, um, you know, hormone, you know, biological, how these things all come together to influence, you know, how we move and, you know, and is it truly predictive of injury? You know, just because it's different doesn't make it worse. So um, I, th I think it's, instead of the cause, I see it more of a symptom um, of the injury rather than, and that maybe what we need to be targeting is what comes before it. Treat the cause, not necessarily put a Band-Aid on it. The right. Injury. Yeah, we're treating the symptom instead of the underlying cause. And if we don't get back to that cause, we're not going to be as effective in our prevention efforts. And Shelby, your work is a real departure from that often in biomechanics heavy ACL world, right? Um, you had a recent online first publication entitled Neuroplasticity in Cortical Limbo Limbic Brain Regions in Patients After Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction. So describe your work a little bit more and how it fits into this overarching research. Yeah, so I, I like to describe my research agenda in two ways. I, I want to know what's happening in the brain from a psychological perspective in this, this patient population, but I also want to know how we can train the brain from a psychological perspective to help to enhance outcomes. Um, so specifically how uh, the, the paper that you're referencing, what we did with that particular um, study uh, we had patients go undergo functional MRI and we had them complete a picture imagination task. Uh, with During the picture imagination task, it, it, they were shown pictures of sports specific activities and activities of daily living and were instructed to imagine themselves physically and mentally completing a task. And our hope was to start to identify um, whether there are differences between patients who have history of ACL reconstruction and, and healthy match controls as it relates to, to brain activity. Um, and what we ended up finding was some differences associated um, differences in these emotional regulation centers in an ACL population from just imagining themselves completing these sport specific tasks. Uh, so you can only imagine what's happening from a neural perspective when they're actually completing the functional task and in real life. In, in some of my previous work, we've also shown some differences or some relationships between psychological variables and neurocognitive outcomes like reaction time. Um, so we're trying to, my work is essentially trying to identify what are some of the objective measures that are being affected by these psychological factors, such as fear and decreased confidence. Uh, and then on the other side of it, as I mentioned, um, implementing uh, psychological interventions that can be implemented by rehabilitation specialists, by athletic trainers in clinical practice to decrease fear, to decrease anxiety, and ultimately improve some of these neurological outcomes. Can we change and modify brain activity? Can we change reaction time uh, with the hope of ultimately improving uh, return to sport, and, but more importantly, decreasing secondary injury risk in this population? 
Thank you. So what are some of the research advances, and Shelby, you kind of talked on this a little bit, that clinicians should consider implementing right now or some things that uh, you guys see coming in the near future that clinicians could get excited about? I think from uh, a neural perspective, and I know a lot of this work um, coming from uh, Dusty Grooms, Ohio University, and we're looking at the differences in, in, in brain activity. And I, I know Adam and Lindsay have done some brain activity work at University of Michigan, um, thinking about external focus of attention and trying to um, implement these types of uh, techniques into clinical practice. Uh, essentially, when we're thinking about differences of focus of attention from this neural perspective, essentially a change in our language and how we're giving these instructions. It's a simple verbal uh, alteration that could potentially lead to neural and brain activity changes uh, from that cortical limbic or cortical uh, neural perspective. I think that's something that clinicians can potentially start implementing now in their clinical practice. I think there's enough evidence to suggest that it could be potentially beneficial for this population. Lindsay and Sandy, what yep. do you guys, how can clinicians start implementing some of the research? You want to go, Lindsay? Well, I, <laughs> I think a lot of the things that Shelby just mentioned are, are certainly up and coming and exciting to think about. I think our group has sort of taken a step back, honestly, thinking about like, we're never going to get the treatment right if we don't understand what the, the disease and the disease progression. And so we've developed some animal models and some we're using some more basic science techniques to kind of like probe um, some of these sort of um, more intricated, intricate relationships, mechanisms to, to understand so we can better prescribe treatments and, and, and identify windows of opportunity. So um, I would say, you know, the data will be coming, but it's uh, we're sort of taking a step back to say, like, oh, do we really understand this? Um, well enough and what can be done um, in the lab right now to kind of elucid elucidate some of those those factors. Yeah, and my answer actually is a, is a mix of both of theirs. I think, you know, we found neuromuscular training to be effective, but the numbers needed to treat, which is about 100 to prevent one injury. Um, I don't think we would accept that if we were trying to cure cancer or something, you know. Um, and I think, you know, how we train, when we train, and what we're training are things that we still need to learn. You know, the what is we still don't, until we understand the cause, we don't know what we're targeting. We do know that it's showing up very early. Um, the rise in risk happens between 12 and 16, so there's something developmentally happening. So when we train matters, um, you know, and, and, and how we train, which Shelby spoke to, is, you know, the method by which that we uh, train. And that, that really requires that we know what we're targeting. So um, I think the more that we continue to do this multidisciplinary work, that's what's going to really move um, prevention and um, what clinicians can do with it. What unique perspectives do you guys feel that being a female researcher brings to your work, particularly when we talk about the world of ACL injury, right? We know the high risk in females. What does being a female researcher bring I, I, think, once, right? <laughs> I think you hit on one of them. I mean, I, I can't, you know, 
I mean, the number of women that have gotten athletic training or the number of women that have gotten into studying ACL injury because they've had an injury themselves, um, you know, and I, I think that means the injury clearly has an impact. And um, bringing that personal experience to the table can only enhance the clinical you know, relevance of it. And I think when we think about prevention programs and that we're targeting young females, obviously to have female researchers um, is a positive thing there as well. And I think um, in the world of orthopedics, which is generally pretty male dominated, um, I think we have probably a better proportion of female scholars with this particular injury than some other areas of um, orthopedic research. And I think that's important, you know, stud women studying women's issues, women's health issues. Yeah, and I, I think going along those lines, if we're trying to identify new avenues to potentially help to improve patient care in this area, having different voices and different with different backgrounds who potentially provide a different perspectives from an array of identities that may be influencing this patient population. So this, again, predominantly happens in, in women. Um, having women athletic trainer researchers and women researchers in this area in general could potentially help to identify things that may have been overlooked if we didn't have uh, women researchers in this area. I think it's just a diversity in thought, which can potentially lead to just innovative studies in the future and in, in identifying other paths that may have been overlooked. For us, it's almost like simple of like, you, we should include both sexes in this study, right? Like we should have, <laughs> when we do our basic preclinical work, we should have male and female rodents, right? Because it's relevant. Um, and so we've tried to just infuse like simple things like that into some of our experiments to make it more of a broad appeal to the, you know, to the audience that actually suffers this type of injury. So um, we try to think about it from an experimental design standpoint as well. We're seeing a big push, particularly with like the NIH coming out and saying you need to be including females in research. How do you guys feel we're going to advance women's sports medicine research by just having women studied more often and also women researchers asking the question? I mean, I think... Oh, go ahead, Lindsay. I was going to say platforms like this, right? You're showing like future researchers that like look like people that have, you know, similar interests or backgrounds that look like you or, you know, that have like, um, that have like these same core values, you know, like are, are doing, are doing things with their career, right? Like showing, showing the next generation that this is, this is in, indeed possible mentoring, you know, young female um, athletic trainer, athletic trainer researchers um, to come up in the field. That's kind of like the fun part of the job. Um, and I think platforms like this help. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think you just, um, you need to see that it's possible, you know, and that you can do anything you want to do um, that you really have a passion for. Sometimes it's about knowing it's out there and finding your passion. And once you find it, you know, you're off and running. So according to the 2018 NETA salary survey, 58.6 of athletic trainers who also hold a PhD are female. If you look at EDDs, um, where females are at 
49.5%. And Sandy, in your editorial for this March issue, you mentioned that females still need to be, um, that they're still underrepresented, right, in terms of recognition of their scholarship and the hope for recognition to grow with the increase in the number of women scholars. So how do we start addressing this disparity between the number of female athletic training researchers and recognition of their contributions, particularly when we're essentially now the majority? Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a good question. I think, um, I think we're beginning to close that gap. Um, I think we're beginning to see a rise in women scholars over the last 20 years. The one thing I don't know, and we just didn't have time to research for this editorial, is what is that trajectory? We may be at 58%, 58% now, but when did that rise really occur? And, you know, obviously publications, grants, and awards are going to lag behind that. Um, I think we're beginning to see us catch up with that in terms of the number of women scholars who have gotten the dissertation level award, and I fully expect that will trickle up to the higher awards, but still it's 26% of the recipients, not 58%. Um, again, whether that, you know, there's going to be a five to what, seven year lag in that. So whether that is in numbers or that we just really need to increase um, acknowledging worthy scholars and, and promoting them for these awards, um, I'm not sure. But I think we certainly can do a more of the latter. There's sometimes the awards have left been left un, unawarded in a given year. And um, I don't think that's always because there wasn't somebody worthy. I think it's because we didn't nominate them. So, um, you know, I think it. I think it's continuing to promote um, women. I think it's um, putting their names up there for the quality work that we're doing, um, and so that we recognize that. So one of the things that I actually noticed was I'm seeing as a junior faculty member myself, a lot more females that when I, when I was going through my PhD, it was primarily females in the PhD. As a junior faculty member, I'm seeing that more often. Are you guys seeing the same thing, Shelby and Lindsay? What were your experiences? I would say it's like a fairly good, my experience was it's a fairly good mix Still, I think to Sandy's point that like you're seeing more young female scholars get like some of these like national recognition and, and these awards, I think is true. But I, I do think there's a gap between like people that have like hit like tenured level pr professions and achieve like these like upper level awards in our society. Like that doesn't happen at the same rate um, that it happens for um, our male counterparts. So there there is a gap still. Um I, I think in terms of my own personal experience, I, I don't, I, I think I was in programs that had a pretty diverse um, group of both males and, and, and females of both gender types um, represented. Yeah, I, I also, um, of course, agree with, this, with everything that's been already been said. Um, I, in my program, my PhD program had a pretty diverse, I think we actually were more uh, women dominated than, than males in my particular program. Um, but I think it just goes to show that despite having more PhDs in this area, we, we still have some disparities that we need to, to address. 
I, th I, think the number, I think the number that we need to look at is how many of those PhDs go into a research one institution versus um, an education type position or or a largely teaching mission in undergraduate. So PhD even versus EDD really doesn't tell you where they're practicing. And so um, I think there's family life issues, other things that come into play there. Um, but, you know, I think that speaks to the broader academic culture and how we need to make it possible for those women scholars to be very successful in those research roles. It'll yeah, be I, Go ahead, Shelby. I, I was just going to say that I think like we will, people are motivated when they see people who are similar to them, that look like them, that are, that they feel like they can relate to. And that would encourage them to potentially go into these higher level research faculty positions. But we, we have to have more women into these research faculty positions for other people to realize that they can actually do it. For me, I did not voluntarily, I admit this, voluntarily start doing research. It was part of my master's program and I had to do it in order for her to get my master's degree. And then I loved it and I couldn't imagine not doing anything else. But until I was um, almost thrown into this research world and I didn't really see a ton of people who um, look like me, women who were in this field. So I didn't think it was something for me. Um, so I think that the power of representation of women in these and in, in, at R1 institutions is important in order to get more uh, women in these institutions later on. I also had really great women mentors. I, I mean, I even consider Lindsay to be one of my like women mentors that I've had as I've transitioned throughout this, um, this time. And I think having these strong women mentors can really help to enhance some of the disparities we see moving forward. And even not from a mentor, but even a, from a peer level to see others that are going through, going up for tenure at the same time as you. And that's definitely very encouraging. It'll be interesting to see how things go, particularly at our one institutions and because we're seeing so many positions being clinical faculty, the number of tenure track positions decreasing from a national standard. Um, so it'll be really interesting research and kind of looking at the trajectory of athletic training female researchers in the next few years, because it takes a career to get to the fellow position, as I'm sure Sandy will attest to. <laughs> so Shelby, um, Wanted to ask you specifically, how has the intersectionality of being both a woman and a Black athletic training researcher really influenced your career? Yeah, I think, um, so I, again, like I, the main idea of my research is to provide this holistic approach to how we treat our patients. And that holistic approach means that we're taking into account all the different factors that could potentially be influencing them. So not just do they have fear, do they have anxiety, but what's their background uh, and, and, and who they are as a human can potentially ultimately influence the outcomes we see. Um, I think from my own background as a, a Black uh, person in athletic training and a Black researcher in athletic training, um, it just further fuels my desire to want to treat people from these, the holistic perspective, because I know that my own um, intersections of being a Black woman have altered many steps in my life and have influenced a lot of this, the decisions I made. Um, and I can only imagine that for my patient population and, and my patients that I treat or previously uh, uh, was treating, um, that 
the color of their skin to how they're viewing their fear or anxiety. Again, it's all going to influence how they respond to the treatment I give. Um, so I think probably that's essentially the, the biggest thing for me as a Black researcher and how it's influenced my, my career and my research is, again, treating people and understanding that there's more to the surface than just uh, their poor ability to jump. Why are they not going to rehabilitation? Is it a socioeconomic issue? Um, and just making sure we're taking a step back and thinking about our patients from this whole person perspective. And, and I, I think that's pretty much how it's influenced my, my own personal line of work. So one of the things that we've kind of kept circling back to is this idea of seeing somebody like you in a role and making it more believable. So what advice would you give the next generation of potential women athletic training scholars, somebody who might be looking out there and seeing for the first time, maybe somebody who looks like them doing things at a really high level? I would say, don't be afraid to reach out to those people. Like if you see someone who is doing something that you're interested in or are even shocked that they're doing that or in that position, like reach out and see how they got there. Reach out to see what they're doing, like thrive off of those mentorship um, opportunities. Um, I know I've had really good mentors over the course of my short career right now, but they've uh, have helped me to get to the point I'm in at right now. Um, so when you see the people, even though they're few and far in between right now, reach out to them because I guarantee you that they are willing to to help you and want to uh, to be there for you. Yeah, I, Clara, I, go ahead, Sandy. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, um, I I would. I mean, excellent. I think we've all benefited from excellent mentors, and um, both male and female. Um, and um, I think you know, find a good mentor and stay the course. And I think the other thing I would say is don't worry about comparing yourself to anyone else or what they're studying. Um, find your passion, stay committed to it. Um, a lot of times my research was, you know, I'm looking at non-modifiable factors and everybody, you need to look at modifiable factors because those are the things we can fix. And I think I just, I mean, sometimes you just got to stay the course and just do it with the utmost quality integrity and the rest will take care of itself. But um, sometimes you got to, you know, you just got to keep your head down and keep, and keep going. And you've got to surround yourself with those people that are going to encourage you along the way. I think that was super well summarized. I, I would say my own experience is that like I had amazing human, human beings who happen to be really good scientists uh, that like, you know, just kind of brought me along and let me, you know, fumble a little bit and make mistakes. Um, but always, you know, find ways to encourage me. Um, yeah. I had people that like cared about like me progressing forward, um, and didn't put like their own agenda in front of like what I might've needed, you know, at that time. So I think, you know, trying to find some of those relationships, I, I think to Shelby's point, like people are much more approachable, um, then maybe you, most people are much more approachable than maybe, um, you think they are. I think actually the advent of like people using Twitter, like has maybe sort of knocked down, um, some of these like walls between, um, researchers and, and more purely clinicians. So, um, I think that's great. I think it's generated a lot of good conversation. So, um, I think this is all to say that I find, find people that like are, that help champion 
champion others. Um, and generally those people happen to be pretty good scientists too and, and good lifelong uh, mentors. Thank you guys all so much. Thank you again, Sandy, Lindsay, and Shelby. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And um, as always, the content that some of the manuscripts that we discussed in Sandy's editorial are available for free on the Journal of Athletic Training's website. So again, thank you guys for joining me today. Thanks for having us.